Who shot JFK? It's November 1963, and the sitting US president was shot and killed, ostensibly from the six-story window of the uh, Texas Book Depository in Dallas uh, by Lee Harvey Oswald. Uh, But you'll know that uh, that story is uh, challenged in popular myth. Uh, If you've paid any attention at all to popular culture over the last 50 years, you'll know that in numerous books and films and uh, even songs and TV shows, uh, the the story is told that uh, there was a second shooter, a gaggle of shooters on the grassy knoll behind the president, a much easier shot. Uh, There's a conspiracy theory, and it's an attractive one, and so uh, we're drawn into the story. And you'll all have seen the the video clip, I guess, if you've watched TV at all in your life, of of Kennedy being shot, because it comes up time and time again. It's it's a popular um, trope in in, in our sort of cultural uh, thought. What would I have done if I'd been there? What would I have seen? Would I have seen something that that we're not really sure what's happened? Would I have seen it? What What would it have been like? Of course, the reality is, if we'd been there, we wouldn't really have been there. What do I mean? I mean that um, we wouldn't have been one of the main actors. If you're, if you're Barack Obama, you can watch that video clip and think, what would it like been like to have been there? And he would have been in the car, wouldn't he? Because he's the president. He can, he can sort of see the one-for-one correlation with the guy who got shot. You can think, what would it have been like to have been there and been shot? Probably not a good thing to think about, really. Perhaps if you're the, the current uh, head of the police force in Dallas, you can think about what it would have been like to try and stop Lee Harvey Oswald or, or investigate the crime. But if we'd been there, I guess we probably wouldn't even have been in shock, would we? We'd be in the crowd, lining the streets. We'd have been the bystanders. The temptation for us is to read ourselves into the main characters of the story. Uh, we like that. And actually, I think movies uh, currently don't help us with that. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed the trend recently of uh, making comic books into movies. You'll have seen lots of that. I'm personally looking forward to the next Avengers movie coming out in May. Um, do book with me if you want to come with me to the movies at, at that point. Uh, the, the time was when, when the comic books were written that we were looking for a superhero. You know, the time of the Second World War... Uh, the Cold War, uh, possible alien invasions. We want somebody to keep us safe. We want a saviour. We want somebody to do the things that we can't do, avert nuclear disaster and all of those kinds of things. But now the, the stories are different, aren't they? I don't know if you noticed uh, Christian Bale's Batman. It's a very flawed, very human character, isn't he? Same thing with Iron Man. I don't, sorry, this may be, like this whole illustration may be working really well for the guys and the girls are kind of going... <laughs> no idea what you're talking about okay but you get, you get the idea don't you that, that they stop being superheroes sort of otherworldly and they start to be very much like us because actually we want to feel like we can be the superhero and we're told these guys are just like you and so you can be just like them and we kind of like that don't we we kind of like the idea of being the main character in the story. I, I was reading uh, uh, my Bible this morning, as I tend to do, and, and I was reading David and Goliath. This wasn't a set-up for the, the talk, a genuine true story. Okay, and we've all heard the story, haven't we, of, of the Sunday school teacher who says to the kids, so what are the Goliaths in your life? 
as though we're David. We're not David, I'm not David, I'm not the king, I'm not the hero, I'm one of the soldiers up on the hill, cowering, hiding behind a tree, peeping round to watch the little boy who saves the people. We like to read ourselves into the, into the centre of the story, and I think we need to avoid that when we come to this story. I don't think we feature at all in verses 13 through 17, do we? That four characters, Jesus, John, the Spirit of God, and God the Father, and we're none of those characters. To see where we are in the story, we need to go back to last week's passage. And so we're going to have a little recap. At 3 verse 1, if you look down with me, John comes onto the scene preaching uh, for a baptism of repentance. Uh, the language of coming in this chapter is really important, as we'll see. Uh, John is out in the wilderness, and people are coming to him from the whole surrounding area. Uh, two groups come to John, do you notice? Um, the people went out in verse 5, confessing their sins and were baptised by him. There's a bunch of people. John is saying, uh, repent, uh, for the kingdom of heaven is near. And people go, yes, we will. We will repent, we will confess our sins, uh, we want that to be prepared when the coming one comes. And yet they have these people, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the religious people, uh, highly religious people, verse 7, and they're quite different. Uh, John says, you're, you're a brood of vipers. You haven't come with repentant hearts. You're trusting in the fact that you're descended from Abraham, as though God couldn't raise up uh, more descendants from Abraham from the very stones of the ground. Uh, you refuse to repent. You refuse to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so you've got these two groups, these two crowds watching on when you get to our passage. And what you notice is that John has divided the people of Israel. He's divided the people within the Israelite camp into two groups. You have the religious people who are trusting in their descent from Abraham. And descent from Abraham is really important. Back in chapter 1, verse 1, we're told Jesus is the son of Abraham. That's a really good thing to be, but it's not enough. To be a true Israelite is to be repentant and waiting for the Lord. Two camps. And in doing this, John is preparing the ground for the one who is coming, isn't he? Making straight paths in people's hearts. And then he turns away from himself and says, here he comes. The one who baptises with the Spirit and with fire. The one who will, will bring into his barn uh, the good grain and burn up the chaff in his judgment. Uh, the repentant drawn in and the unrepentant uh, burned up. And so if chapter 1 verse 21, you remember, uh, you should call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Well then this chapter so far has said uh, to be one of his people you need to be more than descended from Abraham. You need to be one of his repentant people. And as we come to our passage, the question we must ask ourselves is, which camp are we in? That's going to be the challenge. Which camp? As we watch on at the scene here in verses 13 to 17, which camp are we in? Which of the two crowds are you going to be part of? Both crowds are sinners. Everyone's a sinner. One crowd recognises it, the other refuses to. Uh, we have a sin problem. Every one of us. The size of the crowd should tell us that. And we have to choose which camp to stand in. How are you going to deal with your sin? Are you going to face it down and admit it? Or are you going to pretend it's not there? 
And the question our passage today is going to ask us is, what are you going to do? And John and, and, and Matthew, as our writer, wants us to come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. Verse 13, the centre of gravity of the, of the chapter, and indeed the whole Bible and the whole of human history, shifts in this one verse. Uh, the crowds have been coming to John, haven't they? He's in the wilderness, the people have been coming to him. But now Jesus comes to John as well. The word came there in verse 13, Jesus came, is a, is a, a word of announces. Matthew's saying Jesus is being announced onto the world stage. We've seen lots about Jesus in chapters 1 and 2, but now he's being publicly announced onto the world stage. And he comes to John. Uh, John is the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself says that. Uh, but Jesus comes to him and things get a little bit awkward. It sort of reads to me a little bit like a sort of fast show sketch. Uh, with John playing the kind of village simpleton. He kind of sees Jesus coming towards him and he's like, you, I, I, I should be, I, I don't understand why you're here, Jesus. I don't understand why you're coming to me for my baptism. And so like King Canute on the beach telling the waves to go backwards... He foolishly tries to deter Jesus. But his explanation is spot on, isn't it? Jesus, I need to come to you. I know everyone else is coming to me, and that's right, because I am the great prophet for God. But I need to come to you, Jesus. You are the one greater than me. I baptise with water, but you will baptise people with the Holy Spirit. You don't need my baptism, I need yours. John understands that the centre of gravity for the religious life of God's people is shifting. He's the one who's been sent to prepare the ground. He isn't there to prepare Jesus, so to speak. Now here is the one who will separate the wheat from the chaff. Here's the one who comes with judgment in his hands will separate the repentant from the unrepentant in a final and full way. What on earth is he doing coming to John? We'll dig into, into the why for in a minute, but let me, let me notice a couple of things as we go that will be helpful as we, as we go through the talk. The first is there are two types of people who shouldn't be baptised. Did you notice that? John stops the Pharisees and Sadducees from coming to him because they refuse to repent. And John tries to stop Jesus from coming to him because Jesus has no need to repent. That will be important in a few moments. But notice also that John, who is the one doing the baptising, who has the whole of God's people in his hand, as it were, hanging on his every word, wants to come to Jesus. The lesser wants to come to the greater. So it'd be weird, wouldn't it, if you were one of God's people looking on who's come to John for baptism, understood you're a sinner, understood that you need to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus, just trust in God. <coughs> if John then says, Come with me to Jesus, it'd be strange if you didn't go with him, wouldn't it? It'd be strange if you didn't go with him. John says, be baptised for repentance and for the forgiveness of your sins, but you must come to Jesus. And the question, I guess, is why? Excuse me. 
I think this passage gives us two answers to that question. And the first is this. Uh, To do with Jesus' identity, uh, he is the perfect son of God. And then secondly, to do with his mission, he is the suffering servant. We've already had a hint of Jesus' identity in verse 14, haven't we? (coughs) Excuse me, it's going to get worse. Verse 14, Jesus, you don't need to come to me and be baptised. You've done nothing wrong. John understands that. Jesus is the one who baptises with the Holy Spirit. He has no need for baptism because he has nothing to repent of. That is, John understands that Jesus is perfect, at least up to this point. But there's more, isn't it? Verse 15, Jesus persuades John to let him be baptised, and he tells us why. He gives us a purpose for this action, to fulfil all righteousness. Now, when I'm at camp, that phrase gets knocked around rather too loosely. It tends to mean, uh, don't do a half-assed job with the thing that you're doing. It fulfil all righteousness, do it properly. I think Jesus means something rather more here. The word righteousness means everything that God demands. In this case, it's evident that God has told Jesus, I want you to be baptised by John. And so if Jesus doesn't get baptised, he will fail to be fully righteous in everything that he does. It's not, it's not that this one act of baptism somehow miraculously means Jesus has fulfilled all righteousness. But it does mean that if Jesus doesn't do this one thing, he will have stopped doing righteousness all the time. Does that make sense? He has to do this because God demands it of him. And so John relents and says, okay, let's, let's do this baptism thing. And you get this just remarkable scene, don't you, in verse 16. The focus isn't really on the baptism at all. John isn't really in the picture at this point. (coughs) Jesus comes up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said uh, to the crowd, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. We get a window into heaven. Heaven is ripped open and God speaks from his throne to the listening crowd. Perhaps you'd have seen the dove there as well, a visible symbol of the Spirit of God descending on Jesus. And at that moment we get this this remarkable clarity about who Jesus is. Let me suggest three things. The first thing we get is why Jesus is so superior to John. John, remember, in Jesus' own terms, is the greatest prophet of the Old Testament, the sort of pre-Christ period. But even John is cowed before Jesus. Uh, He understands, doesn't he, John, that he's not even worthy to pick up Jesus' stinking, soiled sandals. Jesus is greater. Far greater. How much greater? I remember back in chapter 2, verse 15, where we're told that out of Egypt I called my son, and we're sort of thinking, oh, my son, that's interesting. Uh, Sort of a reference to Israel, Jesus' sort of new Israel. We kind of have that in the background. But now the voice of God himself comes, and this really is my son. This is my son, whom I love. Equal with God, fully God, the son of God, with the power to baptise in the Spirit, the one with authority to judge. Of course, if you're, if you're an Israelite on the banks of the Jordan at this point, you're listening in and think, the Son of God? 
Psalm 2 verse 7, you are my son, today I have become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. And my son, that's, that's the king. That's the king of everywhere. The one to whom the whole world will be given. And so here is Jesus, the king, the Christ, the son of God, rather superior to John, it has to be said. More than that, do you notice uh, who's working with Jesus? Uh, Jesus working with the Father and the Spirit. It's, it's a totally, totally remarkable scene. There's, it's nothing like it in, in human history. Jesus is there. The Spirit of God descends on him, anointing him, giving him uh, the strength, the power uh, for his ministry. Uh, 4 verse 1, Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert. The Spirit is at work in Jesus' ministry from here onwards. And you get the voice of the Father saying, I, I approve of everything that Jesus does. Uh, the Father is with him. Uh, that phrase, uh, with him I am well pleased, literally is, is, I am pleased with him and will go on being pleased with him. Uh, the Father knows that he's, he can be completely pleased with Jesus, with everything that he does. Uh, the Spirit is with him. The Father is on his side. Uh, Jesus is perfect. He is the perfect son of the Father, a man of utterly sinless perfection, approved by God in every way, the true, the only true son of Abraham. Uh, the son of Abraham the Pharisees can't hope to be, a man with the approval of the Father in a way we cannot hope to have. He is the one who is perfectly acting out the plan of God, the Trinity. But that still begs the question, why should we come to him? For what purpose should we come to him? What will he achieve? Come to Jesus because he's the perfect son of God. Come to Jesus because he is the suffering servant. I think two features of the text help us at this point uh, to see why Jesus is such good news. Just go back at verse 15 again. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. He's doing it because the father tells him to do it, but Why? We know Jesus doesn't need to be baptised. John, John tells us as much. So why does Jesus get baptised? Well, we've seen back in 2.15, haven't we, that, uh, that Jesus is, is standing in for Israel now. He's, he's the new son of God called out of Egypt. Jesus takes on the baptism of, of the repentant people of God. <coughs> Jesus is identifying with his people. Just, just like he did when he was born in Bethlehem, just like his people were, born in ignominy. Now he's baptised the way his people are. Not because he deserves it, but because he wants to identify with his people. He's one of them, though of course without sin. Uh, but the second point takes us further, doesn't it? Look at verse 3. Do you remember uh, the quote from Isaiah 40? A voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way of the Lord, make paths uh, that were straight for him. And Andy showed us that was the beginning of, of the sort of the great rescue section of, of Isaiah. I think Isaiah 40 is still in the background here. So verse 17 again. A voice from heaven said, This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And he might as well be quoting verbatim from Isaiah 42.1. A passage we, don't, we know Matthew's familiar with because he quotes the, the chapter at length in chapter 12. Let me read to you. Here is my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. 
Of course, Jesus isn't only the servant, he's the son. I'm picking up uh, Psalm 2. But he is the servant. He's a servant who delights God. He's a servant on whom God has put his spirit to bring about justice. That is, to deal with sin. As you read on in Isaiah, you're asking the question, who is this servant, God? Who is this servant that you delight in? Isaiah 44, is it Israel? Israel gets called the servant. And you go, well, no, it can't be Israel. They're hopeless. They're the ones who need rescuing. And, of course, that's still the case. They're there, repentant, and on the banks of the Jordan, watching on, aren't they? And so are we. What follows that that unit in the middle of the the section is uh, three more servant songs, each one more specifically identifying the work of the servant. If you get to these words in Isaiah 53. (coughs) After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. My righteous servant will justify many. Justify being a a, a verbal form of righteous. My righteous servant will righteousify many. How will the the servant bring righteousness? He will make people righteous. He will bear their iniquities, the sins of his people, and so make them righteous. And here comes the servant, announced onto the scene. He is the perfect son of God, the one who is fulfilling all righteousness, taking on the baptism of his people, uh, this repentant people of God. Not all of the Israelites, but those who are truly repentant in their hearts. It's as if as they go into the Jordan, they're having their sins washed off them. And as Jesus uh, sinks into the water, all the, the sins of his people are being washed onto him. Innocent Jesus, perfect Jesus, uh, carrying up out of the water the sins of his people. Righteousness means doing what God demands. Every one of us is, that's God's demand on us, to be perfect as he is perfect and we're not. Which is why we come to the river in repentance, as these people did. But Jesus has become the representative of the people. He's taken the sin and the guilt of those who trust in him. He bears it. And in its place he gives us his righteousness. We don't need a hero who is like us, friends. We need a hero uh, who can do what we cannot do. And so as we draw to a close, I want to to spend a moment or two thinking about about this point, the righteousness that Jesus gives to us. Come to Jesus, the perfect Son of God. Come to Jesus, the, the suffering servant. Come to Jesus in joyful repentance. See, we have a choice here, brothers and sisters. We can stand in the camp of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They're on their own. Maybe we stand with them because we're self-righteous. We think that we've done enough to please God, but he's perfect and he demands perfection of us. Or perhaps we are tempted to stand with them trusting in our heritage as though because our parents went to church, we're okay. But God has no grandchildren, only children. Either way, the Pharisees and the Sadducees have put themselves outside of grace, outside of Jesus' people, and subject to his judgment. Everyone has to stand before God, but these people choose to stand before God without an advocate, without a representative, and without defence. Will we stand with them? But if we, like the rest of the crowd, 
in repentance and trust in Jesus, uh, come to him, then he becomes our representative. He stands in our place, covered in our sin and guilt, and giving us his perfect life. See, repentance, people think is, is the easiest thing in the world. It's just words, isn't it? But it's not. It's the hardest thing in the world. Repentance is, is a hard thing to do because it requires humility before God. It requires us to stand before God and say, I've stuffed it up. I cannot live the, the life that you call me to live. I need a rescuer. I need someone to rescue me. To come to the river and to mean it. That's hard. It'll mean mending our ways. It'll mean change. It'll mean moving away from sin and towards God in every area of our lives. It's a difficult thing to do. But I want us to see, friends, that it is a joyful thing. It is a glorious thing. Just one more time. Look at verse 17 with me, would you? This is my son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And now read your own name there. Would you do that? So if you trust in Jesus, if he has borne all your guilt and shame, then God's verdict on Jesus is his wonderful, liberating verdict on all of us. This is my son, Neil, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my daughter, Nush, whom I love. With her I am well pleased. And so on and so forth. Can you hear God speaking those words over you? Can you see why it is such good news to trust in Jesus? Can you see? Can you taste and see that the Lord is good to his people? Can you see how liberating it is? No more guilt. These are God's words, his testimony over us. Totally secure. If you've come to the river, if you've repented of your sins, if you come back to Jesus time and again with repentance and faith, then you can be totally assured that you are clothed in white in God's sight. I guess some of us will be bearing horrible things in our past, things we're deeply ashamed of, things perhaps we've never shared with anybody else at all. Whatever your past, whatever is on in your life now, you can turn to Jesus and God will speak these words over you again. Of course there's still a battle with sin. And repentance every day means turning from that sin towards God. And when we stumble, and we will. And when we trip and fall, and we will. We pick ourselves up and Christ is with us. And he says, I've borne your guilt and shame. You are clean before God. He loves you. And with you he is well pleased. You see, the self-righteous person, they can't admit their sin. Perhaps, like me, you struggle with this. You have to believe you're good enough, and if someone points out your guilt and your, and your wrongdoing, you kind of hide from it and go, no, that's not me. I didn't do that. Because we're trying to earn it for ourselves. The religious person will oscillate, move between being joyful and despairing, depending on how they feel like they're done before God today. But the Christian... The Christian is secure. The Christian knows that we will stumble, sometimes really badly. Every one of us 
Uh, perhaps every day we'll do things and say things and think things that we are desperately ashamed of. Don't be surprised by it. <coughs> and don't despair of it either. Turn and repent. Uh, cling to Christ. Come back to him again. You see, the great liberty for the Christian is to know and to know for certain that God approves of them. To never waver, never doubt. To know that whether the times are good or hard in our Christian lives, the Lord calls us his children because of Jesus. Friends, we're not the main character in the story. Christ is. But if we belong to him, then the superhero has become like us so that we might become like him, approved of in God's sight, perfectly. As we draw to a close, let me suggest a couple of ways you can tell whether you've grasped this. See, the person who's grasped this will be able to be honest about their own sin with themselves. I don't know if you've ever had that conversation. Men will testify that we've had this on, on occasions where she will say something like, you just... Did, you did something really naughty there, Ash. You said the wrong thing. You treated like, the kids really badly. And my natural response is to go, no, I didn't. No, I didn't. And defend myself. Because I don't want to admit that I'm, I'm wrong. But you know, by the grace of God, I've begun to be able to go, yeah, you know, you're right. I really did. I stuffed that quite badly, didn't I? That's not good. And to turn to the Lord and repent. Apologise to the kids. Mend the bridges that I've broken. Grace is being able to say, I have stuffed it up. But as I come back to Jesus, I am right in God's sight. I guess it will mean being able to be honest with the people closest to us. My guess is that every single one of us has something in their hearts, something in their past, something that they, they struggle with day by day that they've never even shared with their spouse or their housemates or their closest friends. Why not make it your, your target this week, to be honest, about something that you're struggling with, that you've not shared with someone? Because bringing into the, the darkness into the light drives away darkness. Because we're all carrying around stuff that we're ashamed of, but has been dealt with by the Lord Jesus. We need not feel shame and ashamed of being broken people in need of grace. We should only be ashamed when we're trying to bear those things by ourselves. Now, perhaps one or two of us might need uh, to take some time this evening to talk to one of the elders, uh, to, to, to share something that, that is deeply personal, that you'd love uh, confession, and then to speak, uh, to, to hear these words again. You are my child, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. It'd be a great thing to do. I'm sure the elders would love to spend some time with you if that's you. Um, uh, if that's not you, or perhaps if it is, and, and, and you just like a, a passage to go to that would help you to think about these things, I'm going to share with you now uh, to end. Psalm 32. It's a psalm that I have found personally very, very helpful when, when confronted with my sin and bearing a, a load of guilt about things that I've done. Let me read uh, just the first five verses of Psalm 32, uh, though the whole psalm is worth uh, reading again and again. Psalm 32. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord does not count against him, 
and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was sapped, and in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Shall I pray? Our loving Lord Jesus, we praise you that you have lived the life that we cannot. Uh, that uh, means that when we come to you, you make us righteous as you are. That means that we can hear these words, that you have forgiven us and taken away the guilt of our sin. And I want to pray, uh, loving Lord Jesus, that we would know uh, the liberty that comes from holding those words true. That you have uh, forgiven us and made us perfect in the sight of the Father. And Heavenly Father, would you make us uh, give us assurance of those words that we are your children whom you love and with us you are well pleased through the Lord Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.
Well, I guess for me it was, uh, it was a sobering um, time in God's Word, but the end of that psalm does finish. Uh, Ash has just been reading, Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. Sing, all of you who are upright in heart. And the psalm that I began with, likewise, in recognition of who God is, in recognition of His love and His great compassion and the forgiveness that we can know in Him through His Son, it finishes, May my mouth it will speak in praise of the Lord. Let every preacher praise his holy name forever and ever. And I guess as we uh, go and leave here today, uh, there are many things that I want to talk about. I guess the rugby will be somewhere in our vocabulary for English, not for lunch. <laughs> I guess, you know, if, if pressures of work, there'll be, we'll, we'll want to talk about those things. There'll be all sorts of pressures in our lives and struggles that we're facing. It is right and it is appropriate to talk and to share and, and to encourage one another in those things. And yet, the one thing that should be on our lips should be the one who does everything for us in his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. My mouth will speak in praise of the Lord. Let's pray that I say. Heavenly Father, we've just been seeing the little glory in our Redeemer. May that be true of our of our conversations, but also of our lives, even those hidden aspects of our lives that no one knows about. May they glorify and honour you. We trust you, you are our, uh, our Saviour, our King, who have been known today as being acknowledged by the Father in that way, and we thank you so much for that. May this week, especially as we think about all the events that we're hosting and putting on, May we commend the Lord and his Son, the Lord Jesus. May we invite people along that they might hear of his goodness and his kindness and his, his compassion towards them. Please, may you be glorified in all of our lives this week, we pray. Amen. That is the formal part of our service set. Children will be available for you to collect as soon as possible if you're a parent. Uh, please do join us for refreshments upstairs. And at least don't dash off if you're a new amongst us, it'd be great to catch up with you. Take care. See you throughout the week.